0: Before we start, let's pray, please. Our mighty God, we thank you so very much for this opportunity to be together. We pray that you would uh, help us uh, listen to your voice, and that in all that is said and done today, your name would be honored and glorified. Amen. Make sure I've got all the right switches on here. Yeah, there we go. Um, I'm Bruce Steffes. I'm a general surgeon. I have spent the last 18 years in Africa, and I'm in the... uh, Chief Medical Officer now of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. This morning we're going to talk about uh, abdominal pain, and the problem with a chapter like that is when you have only 40 minutes uh, and they give you an entire book, it's kind of difficult to approach it. So I'm going to spend some time more on approaches and some kind of little things uh, that will make a, uh, somewhat of a difference for us uh, as we go along. The definition of abdominal pain that we're going to use this morning is a sudden, severe abdominal pain of unclear etiology that's less than 24 hours duration, requiring fairly immediate management and often surgery. Now, the reality is, of course, is that many of the things that we see in Africa are exactly the same things that we see here. Uh, they are common diseases. They're appendicitis. Uh, they're uh, volvulus. There are things that we see on a regular basis. But there's some differences. Uh, The reality is, of course, that they often come much, much later. And so you see things in a very uh, complicated fashion, the kind of thing that we would see very uncommonly here. And, of course, um, we have the the issues of uh, we don't have the same supplies, the same diagnostic, and the same therapeutic armamentarium there that we would have here. And then we're going to have a series of diagnoses that are somewhat less familiar to us. Um, Many of us are not really familiar with typhoid perforation. And yet, in some places, that'll be your second or third cause for laparotomy. Uh, You'll have things like tubercular um, peritonitis or tubercular enteritis, again, something we don't see a great deal of. Uh, You would have things like ascariasis causing small bowel obstruction, worm boluses causing problems. Uh, We have adult intussusception here in the States. It's almost always pediatric, but we'll have adult uh, intussusception there. And then you have things like primary peritonitis or pig bell or some of the other more uncommon things that occur in that uh, developing world. So when you start to go into this scenario, you have to realize that You may have different diseases, so it's not going to be in your algorithm. You know, if you come up with a differential diagnosis for abdominal pain here in the States, you'll have to add some diseases to that. The second reality is, of course, again, it's advanced pathology, so it may throw you because you haven't seen it look like that before. Uh, And thirdly, of course, there's not many uh, caregivers, and you have diagnostic capabilities. And, of course, the things that we often would put in our primary list for us, something like, say, diverticulitis, isn't going to exist uh, in that environment very often. As a matter of fact, I can't remember seeing a real case of diverticulitis in 18 years in Africa. So um, that differential diagnosis uh, changes. And what's going to be very, very important is to realize that, therefore, your pattern recognition is going to have to change a bit as well. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. So what kind of diagnosis are you likely to see? Well, that depends on where you are. Uh, The developing world is not uniform. There's a tremendous difference. Just looking at Africa itself, it's three times the size of the United States. So there's geographical and parasitic diseases and various things that are differential, are, are different between those areas. And, of course, there are, again, tribal issues and genetic issues and so forth that are going to be different as well. So, for example, in uh, one study from Ghana, most common uh, diagnosis was appendicitis and perforated typhoid. So that was your differential diagnosis. On the other hand, uh, a study from Gabon a couple of years ago, uh, they had incarcerated hernias causing, and strangulated hernias being their most common cause of this kind of thing, with appendicitis, volvulus, small ball obstruction, perforated typhoid in their priority list. A study at Tenwick, it was volvulus as their leading cause as opposed to anything else, and then followed by appendicitis, perforated peptic ulcer disease, trauma, etc., In a uh, recent study on the global burden of surgical disease, there were 31 diagnoses that Dr. Stewart looked at in trying to determine how significant uh, acute disease was in in surgery throughout the developing world, and 19 of those diagnoses could be in this lecture. So we're not going to try to hit all 19 of them, uh, but we'll go from there. You have to realize that in the United States we often say you have to remember that common things are common, and we use the expression that hoofbeats are horses. Uh, In Africa there may literally be zebras. It changes your... uh, your Bayesian probabilities of the underlying probability of the disease that goes along with it. When talking about patterns, we also have to realize that some of these diseases, if you know the pattern or recognize the pattern, that's going to be the most important thing you have for diagnosis. Because you're not going to get, the admission orders are not going to be CBC, UA, and CAT scan like they are in the United States. Uh, you're going to have to recognize them on physical examination, history and physical. For those of you that are uh, younger age, physical examination is when you actually touch the patient. Okay. Um, <laughs> And so these are, these are going to be important concepts to understand the pattern of the disease. Uh, in a recent lecture that Christopher Moore, the pediatric surgeon at um, Mayo Clinic, uh, he gave an excellent uh, thing that I hadn't seen before, and he had the rule of threes like in kids. And so if you have someone who's under three months and they have bilious vomiting, then the most common diagnosis is either going to, is going to be malrotation. And, of course, malrotation is a surgical disease. And so in our environment, in the developing world, if I have a kid under three months who's vomiting and it's bilious, then it's malrotation until I prove otherwise. And, of course, the only way I can prove it in that situation is going to be the steel CAT scan. It's going to be with an incision to make sure that that's it because I dare not be wrong. Otherwise, they'll be dead. Uh, if they're under three months and it's uh, bilious, non-bilious vomiting, then we start talking about things like reflux or sepsis or pyloric stenosis as being your most common. So under three months, bilious. Surgery, non-bilious, maybe surgery, but not urgently. And so that helps us a little bit. If you're between three months and three years and you have pain, especially when there's a mass associated with it, it's suspicion until you prove otherwise. And so uh, that uh, is going to be your, your leading diagnosis. And if you're over three years, it's appendicitis. And that's a very reasonable kind of practical uh, approach to these uh, cases. The problem that we have is that, uh, of course, nobody wants to do unnecessary surgery, unnecessary invasive things. Oh, we got something. Good. But, um, where are we? All right. so, um, but sometimes surgery is your best option, that people can tolerate an unnecessary laparotomy better they can tolerate a delayed diagnosis because you don't have CAT scans, you don't have ICUs, you don't have other things, and and this is uh, the way you're going to need to approach this. As you know, you have very limited space and diagnostic equipment, so what do you need if you're there and there's only you? Well, most of the time you need light and you need space and you need some degree of privacy and some degree of chaperoning depending on the sexual uh, differences between you and the patient. The most important thing that you can ever do is take a history and physical. One thing that's true about almost all GI diseases, the history almost always gives you the diagnosis. I know that we always get CAT scans and all the other stuff in the United States, but it's really not necessary 98% of the time. A good history and physical. For those of you that have not read this book, Sir Zachary Cope wrote a book on the early diagnosis of the acute abdomen. And it was written for a time when there wasn't CAT scans and PCR and everything else. And that textbook was rewritten in the early 90s by Dr. Sillen, but it's still valid. But actually one of the earlier things, so if you can go on the web and get one of the very earliest uh, copies of uh, the early diagnosis for the acute abdomen, that's an excellent textbook to help you know how to make diagnosis in the third world when you don't have everything that goes along with it. And uh, one of the quotes from one of Cope's earlier traditions, it's only by thorough examination that one can propound a diagnosis, and if early stages of the disease are recognized, you have to take care of the earliest symptoms. Fairly obvious. So you are there. What are you going to need? The answer is a stethoscope. Okay. Now, it is not true that surgeons do not know which end of the mouth of it goes in your mouth. We do know that. Okay. Um, but you need, a, you need a good stethoscope. You need a wrist sp- or a, a blood pressure. One of those little wrist ones are nice now. Um, ideally, you'd have a finger oximeter, and you can get those for 35 bucks, made in China at this point, so they're fairly cheap to take along with you. And then some sort of either oral or temporal thermometer. Um, you can use old-fashioned thermometers, but keeping them clean and not breaking are an issue. Uh, if you're confused, you just have to remember on the rectal and the oral, you have to remember which end goes where. Okay, that's the only important thing there. But most importantly, you have to think, and you have to do a physical examination and come in with it as well. Now, from a diagnostic capabilities, we do not have all the assays and all the complement fixation tests and all the other things. Uh, Basically, we have a plain x-ray. It's going to be an upright and KUB of the abdomen, and it's going to be chest x-ray. If you're in trauma, if you have an ultrasound, a fast, focused assessment of sonography within trauma, uh, looking at uh, the possibility of free fluid in the belly, will give you a quick clue as to whether or not they need to go to the operating room. And then our labs are relatively limited. CBC, malaria. The most common cause of post-operative fever, of course, is, in you know, a malaria endemic area is malaria. And number two, malaria. And number three, malaria. And then we get into all the other five W's that we all learned as medical students. Um, Most places will have a weed-all test. It's really of no value whatsoever to you. We may talk about that a little bit later. It uh, is great for determining whether you've ever had the disease, but it doesn't tell you whether you have it now. Billy Rubin test will give you some clue whether they're jaundiced or not because that will change your differential diagnosis, and most hospitals will have that. Uh, Viral studies uh, in terms of hepatitis B and C, uh, you may or may not have it, and often they're batching them. So it will take you a while before you get that diagnosis. And always remember that pregnancy uh, is a possibility and can complicate things as well. We have very little in the way of diagnostic uh, invasive studies. And in trauma, the two things that we're going to use is diagnostic peritoneal lavage. Uh, I'm an instructor for advanced trauma uh, uh, surgery life support. And uh, they all poo-poo DPL. But in our environment, it's really valuable, especially if we don't have a... a, um, Ultrasound. Uh, one possibility that you're, if you don't have the ultrasound, you're not likely to have the laparoscopy, but always that's a possibility as well uh, when you have a case where there's not an obvious need for laparotomy and you're just trying to rule it out. Now, one of the things, of course, here in the United States, we'll often sick somebody in the ICU and watch them carefully and watch their belly exam and all that sort of stuff. Non-operative, watchful waiting in the environment of much of the developing world is a real Non-starter because you don't have nurses who are capable of really doing that. Now, if you're going to stay up all night and do that, that might be a possibility. But uh, many of our algorithms now are going to watch things. You dare not do that because they're sleeping, okay, and nobody's watching the kids. So keep that in mind as well. I want to talk just a, a brief uh, things about some of the traumas, and this is just going to be we're going to, Hit it a a lick and a promise. We're not going to spend a lot of time on any one of these things, but just some of the rules and thoughts and uh, ideas that you might have. When you have a trauma patient, of course, the diagnosis is relatively easy in terms of, yes, they've been traumatized. Um, But you have to... uh, Again, state of the primary and secondary survey. You're still going to do the ABCDEs, airways more important than breathing, and breathing more important than circulation, and circulation more than disability, etc. That's always uh, important. And you're going to do a secondary survey, which is nothing more than a good history and physical examination. In this situation, penetrating trauma, that's easy. Even in most of our situations, that means some sort of invasive look, uh, either laparoscopy or laparotomy. Uh, In the developing uh, world, um, we... We'll always have to do that because we don't have the capability to watch them. Uh, So keep that in mind. If you have blunt trauma, again, faster DPL is something to keep in mind, looking for some sort of evidence of visceral injury uh, or bleeding. And there is a very real role for that steel CAT scan Where for a laparotomy because you can't afford to be wrong in this uh, situation. They'll tolerate a laparotomy more than they will being wrong. I want to talk a little bit about appendicitis. You'll notice on that survey that I gave you of the various things, in some places appendicitis is the most common diagnosis. In other places where I've worked, I've never seen a case of appendicitis. Why is that? I have no clue. I don't have a good understanding why that's true, but you really have to know what the endemic pattern of disease is. Um, In this case, it's primarily a clinical diagnosis. There is no x-ray diagnosis that will make it for you. Yes, if you see a fecal lift, it will give you a clue, but that isn't there most of the time. There is no lab test. As a matter of fact, you don't want an abnormal white count in this scenario because the higher your white count is, the more likely you are they're perforated. You want to do your appendicitis on a strong clinical diagnosis without a high white count. Uh, you're certainly not going to get CAT scan. Most of us aren't good enough to read the ultrasound in this scenario, and the truth is, if somebody comes in with who's a 12-year-old who presented with peri-umbilical pain who migrates to the right lower quadrant, I don't care what the ultrasound is, uh, you're going to have to do it. So it's, it's one of those things. that's kind of interesting. It's a great teaching point. Really isn't practical uh, from that standpoint. So what do you do? Well, if it's straightforward, you, ha- you need surgery. But some of you are not surgeons, and you're going to be in places where there are no surgeons, and there's really no safe place to refer them. There is increasingly a body of literature that says that you can treat these with antibiotics and that they'll do reasonably okay. okay I still think appendicitis is prob- probably best treated by surgery, but broad-spectrum antibiotics, both aerobic and anaerobic coverage, and watching them carefully, uh, you can get by with that. So think about that. If you have peritonitis, that's easy. That needs surgery. They need transferred. They, they need to be opened, and you do what's necessary depending on what you find. If you have a patient who comes in and they have a good story of appendicitis, but the story drags on for 7 or 10 days, and when you examine them, you can feel a mass or you get a fullness mass or you do an ultrasound and there's this matted mess down there, even if you can't quite make any sense out of it, Uh, increasingly that is not a surgical disease at that stage. We will treat those with antibiotics, again, broad-spectrum, aerobic, anaerobic coverage, and uh, an NG tube if they've got an ileus that goes along with it, and then see if they get better. Uh, The worst-case scenario in that situation will turn into an abscess that you'll have to drain. And no, you can't send it to invasive radiology. They won't be helping you much. Uh, But you may have to drain that abscess. But most people will get better under that scenario. And then the real debate is, well, then you need to do an appendectomy. And I was going into British here. Uh, Appendectomy. Do you need to do an appendectomy um, in that scenario? And the reality is, is that in a fair number of patients... The appendix has so destroyed itself that it won't recur. So if they are asymptomatic, unless you have a fecolith that you can see on x-ray, there's increasingly a strong argument those people don't need an appendectomy. And if you do have recurring symptoms, there is such a thing as chronic appendicitis, but nowhere near as often as it's diagnosed. But if you have somebody who has the same story over and over again, Then an appendectomy in the meantime, once the abscess has calmed down and the adhesions are friendly, uh, you can do this. Normally, you wouldn't do an interval appendectomy for at least six weeks and preferably longer because the longer you wait, the less bloody and less nasty the adhesions are, and it will be easier on you and the patient. What's about the role of laparoscopy? Of course, the reality is that laparoscopy is not available in most of the United States, or most of the developing world. In the United States, we use it quite frequently, even for males. But there's a lot of debate whether it's even worthwhile for males because a small muscle splitting incision that long versus a laparoscopy, kind of plus minus. However, in females, because of the differential diagnosis and the fact that at least 30 to 35% of those cases are other pathologies, usually ovarian, uh, then laparoscopy is, is indicated. So even in the developing world, laparoscopy, if you have the equipment, if you have the expertise, if you have the CO2, all of which are... Debatable in many situations. Reasonable option for appendicitis. Just talking about peritonitis uh, in general. You have a patient come in, they have peritonitis. You can stand on their belly. They've got definitely rebound. Uh, there's no question they need an, ap- an operation. What do you do? Operate slowly. Uh, don't get into a hurry. They need to be rehydrated. Their sepsis needs to be brought under control. Uh, they need to have broad-spectrum antibiotics uh, on that and get them ready for surgery. If you are not much of a surgeon and you just do it occasionally, make a big incision uh, so that you can see. Uh, Don't try to do something through a real small one. That doesn't make any sense. Um, Whatever the pathology is, you're going to try to fix it as well. And then what do you do with all the peritonitis? The solution to pollution is dilution. You irrigate and irrigate and irrigate and irrigate. Now, the reality is in some of the mission hospitals that you'll be in, they don't have enough fluid to do that there is actually some fair evidence that reasonably good tap water will work uh, as well as saline. Uh, And the little bit of bacteria that's in the tap water is a whole lot less than the number of bacteria that are in this area. So if you really get push comes to shove, you can use tap water, uh, preferably not the stuff with stuff floating in it. But if you have decent uh, tap water, use that. One thing a lot of people say, well, we'll drain it. Uh, It was proved in 1915, and the guy won one of the big surgery prizes, Dr. White, in 1915, that drains don't work in the abdominal cavity. And unfortunately, it seems like uh, literally a century later, we haven't always learned that. So just so you know, drains are of no value in diffuse peritonitis whatsoever. The thing that's uh, really obvious, though, is that because you can't get rid of all the fiber and you can't get rid of all the nastiness, no matter how much you've irrigated and washed it out, there's a high risk of recurrent disease Keep that in mind. When a patient spikes at second and third day, check for malaria. (laughs) But then uh, consider whether or not you're going to have to do a second look operation. Again, because without invasive radiology to bail you out, um, you're going to end up having to re-explore. It's so much so that in typhoid disease and some of the really bad cases of the advanced disease, you ought to probably consider the possibility of a scheduled second look operation. Depending on how bad it is, that can be in 12 hours or 24 hours or 48 hours, but just um, close the abdomen very loosely and then plan to be back. One of the things to always remember is that there is a risk of an abdominal compartment syndrome. If you're not familiar with that, what that means is is a compartment syndrome just means any fixed area, And we classically think about it, for example, in the lower leg, where as the tissue swells in these tight compartments, then that interferes with the blood flow going in it and through it. The abdomen can do the same thing. Uh, We used to, When I trained, uh, we would just, you know, get up on the table with both feet in our sterile boots and try to stomp the intestine in there and get it closed. And we get it closed and we say, aren't we wonderful? And then the problem is that patient would die afterwards because of the compartment syndrome. We didn't didn't recognize what was going on. What is It's interfering with the venous return to the heart, so the blood pressure goes down, the perfusion to the the intestine goes down, because any time the pressure in that compartment exceeds the perfusion pressure of the vessels, then there's no blood flow and the intestine will die. And then, of course, the same thing can happen to the kidney. You'll go into renal failure because you're exceeding the renal vein, uh, venous uh, pressures, and therefore blood is stagnating in the kidney and nothing's happening. So uh, always remember that if this is one that you're really, really, really having trouble closing or you think it's really, really, really going to swell, consider some way to leave that abdomen open. And I'm not that's beyond the scope of this lecture, but uh, there are various techniques that you can do. Um, in the area of peritonitis, again, uh, pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, salpingitis, et cetera, or tubo-ovarian abscess, that used to be considered a surgical disease, and now we've kind of flipped on that, and we rarely operate on them because we found that we don't do any better than nature does as long as we give them broad-spectrum antibiotics, and uh, so don't operate on those. If you operate on them, your risk of uh, sterility actually goes up. This is a picture of a, a case that sometimes we'll see. We'll have somebody comes in. They have diffuse abdominal pain. And I don't know if any of you can see it, but it's, this thing is studded with all these little white spots, these little granules that are the size of an end of a pencil. And, uh, of course, carcinomatosis comes to mind, but that doesn't happen that often compared to this disease. What is this? Tubercular peritonitis. Okay? And so we, because we do a better job controlling TB in this country, don't see this real often, but TB uh, definitely affects the GI tract and the peritoneal cavity as well. It affects uh, about one out of every 20 to 50 patients with uh, TB. Uh, less than 50% of the patients that have abdominal TB have active pulmonary disease. So just because they have lung disease doesn't mean they're going to have TB and just, I mean, uh, peritoneal TB and just because they have a peritoneal TB doesn't mean they're going to have uh, lung disease. It tends to be more of a secondary or a uh, recurrence of the original uh, disease as well. There's two types of uh, peritoneal TB we won't get into. it. One's an ascetic type, which is a wet, and the other is a plastic. So you can get in there, and you can see ascites, and you see all those little granules, and that picture I showed you would be of that category. And then in some patients, for reasons I don't fully understand, there's truly a fibroadhesive adhesive type. You get in there, and everything's matted together. It's just a mess. And so uh, one of the things that you don't want to do the, the one that's all matted together, the plastic one, is, gives you that classic doughy abdomen. So when you examine these patients, it's literally like taking bread dough. You just kind of all kind of feels funny and sticks together. Um, in those patients, it's almost always a disease of the terminal ileum. It can involve other areas as well. If you look at the disease of the small intestine itself, it produces small ulcers. Again, this is a granulomatous disease. It looks amazingly on the inside like Crohn's disease in terms of the linear, linear ulcers and such. And, again, uh, we've for years suspected that Crohn's may actually be some sort of mycobacterium disease that we haven't quite identified. And so it may still be. Um, they will get case- caseating uh, granulomas. As you know, TB is classic for that. So if you've got a small uh, intestinal uh, lymph node and it broke open or you biopsied it and it had that classic, cream cheese appearance. That would give you a clue along those lines. A Zeal Nelson study, stain if you do it, is worth doing because if it's positive, it's positive, but if it's negative, it doesn't necessarily help you that much. And the symptoms are relatively nonspecific with tubercular enteritis. Uh, They can have constipation. They can have diarrhea. The answer is just something isn't working right, and so it's a, a disease of very high index of suspicion. You will never make a diagnosis you don't think of. You can quote me on that, okay? But the point is, you've got to have a high index of suspicion. You have to think in this environment, this is something, and literally ask yourself, is this possibly TB in order to make that diagnosis before you operate on it as well? Uh, 5 to 10% of these people can either hemorrhage significantly or perforate. It's really um, uncommon that it's bad enough to come to operation, but uh, it can be. Um, you can get obstruction with this. It acts like Crohn's disease. Uh, it can fish slice, It can bleed. It can obstruct, etc. Uh, and normally if it perforates, it only perforates because there was a true obstruction and proximally, you got enough distension of the intestine that you had an ischemic perforation uh, that came along with it. What do you do? Well, you try not to operate on it. If you make the diagnosis, you don't operate on it because you're not going to make it any better. You can't remove it. You can't do anything else with it. Um, what, if you find something... If there's complete obstruction, you're going to have to remove it. You have no choice under that circumstances, but don't take any more than you absolutely have to. Um, if there are a series of long-term structures, again, that's like Crohn's. Take each sphincter, uh, each of the strictures, do a strictureplasty on those in three and four so you don't remove the, any more small intestine than necessary. And do not get enthused about cutting adhesions because it will fistulize and cause trouble. Okay, I have another case here. A nine-year-old this is a little more uncommon cause of abdominal pain. It's a nine-year-old female had 24 hours of anorexia, increasing abdominal pain, and increasing fever. She's non-localizing rebound and guards in all quadrants. What's your differential diagnosis? Typhoid, typhoid is always a possibility. However, only about 5% of typhoid patients do not Normally, the typhoid perforation occurs in the third week. We'll talk about this. So it's always a possibility. You know, if you're in the middle of dry season in West Africa and you've just done three more other typhoids, there's a chance this is a typhoid, without a doubt. What other differential diagnosis? Pendicitis. Common things are common. That may not be common in that area, but it's, but it's a possibility. What else? Well, most of the OBGYN diagnoses in a nine-year-old are pretty uncommon. Possible. What else? Meckel's diverticulitis. Possibly. What else? Innocenception is conceivable. and normally doesn't occur with a fever, but in mesenteric adenitis or something, it might. Inflammatory Sorry? Inflammatory diarrhea. Inflammatory diarrhea. Possible. Why do we get chest x-rays? Pneumonia. Okay? So never rule out pneumonia in these kids. You can find impressive abdominal exams in pneumonia. So keep that in mind. That's why we do chest x-rays as part of a three way abdomen. You know, that's part of it. So that's a possibility. What else? Okay. Primary peritonitis. It is a disease that we don't see a lot in the United States. We see more commonly in Africa and some other environments. It occurs primarily in primary healthy children, kids that are just fine. They come in and they present like an acute abdomen. They were fine yesterday. Now they look like they have appendicitis. We don't see it in the West except in the immunosuppressed folks, but it is a disease in the developing world of girls primarily. The predominance is like 3 to 1, something like that, if I remember right. Um, And it's usually in the 6 to 10 age, but can go all the way up to 16 We don't know why these people get it. They don't have any particular reason, but they will present with this diffuse abdomen. It's usually a very rapid onset. Uh, They have a fever and a leukocytosis with severe abdominal pain. It may be worse than the right lower quadrant, so it can get really confusing with appendicitis, and that drives you crazy because you operate on a little girl, and they have clearly a belly full of pus, and it drives you crazy because you can't find the cause for it. Uh, Primary peritonitis is likely to be that. Now, the only thing that you might do is if this is a 6- to 10-year-old and you don't have a classic history for appendicitis and it didn't have the classic migration, one thing you might do is do an ultrasound because if you see peritoneal fluid and do a paracentesis, most of these uh, kids have a uh, single organism, a, mono, a mono-organism kind of thing. And so if I got a, a smear that showed absolutely strep or pneumococcus or pure E. coli with nothing else in there, then that's when I might treat with antibiotics, knowing that if it was appendicitis, I wouldn't hurt them by treating with antibiotics necessarily, and I might save the operations on these kids. So uh, that's a, just a consideration. Difficult uh, diagnosis at time. So a lot of times they get operated on because you can't tell the difference and you didn't make the, uh, the uh, diagnosis. Uh, again, you could do it with laparoscopy, and if you don't find an abnormality, just wash them out, get all the bacteria out of there, and they normal recovery fairly quickly. Skip that. Another case study here. Here's a 42-year-old male. Occasional smoking, occasional alcohol intake. Acute abdominal pain. It's more severe in the upper quadrant. He didn't present for 16 hours after the onset because it took him a while to get to your hospital. He's tachycardic, echinocytic, and has an abdomen you can stand on. And you get this x-ray. What's your differential diagnosis? Perforated peptic ulcer. And for us in the West, we don't see this real often anymore. It used to be very common, uh, every night on call you'd do a perforated ulcer, but we see it much more common in in the developing world as well. Ten percent of these patients will have no previous ulcers. No matter what you ask them, you can't get a single symptom out of them that sounds like a peptic ulcer disease. And so the fact that it comes out with no other symptoms doesn't rule it out. Ten percent of them will have melana, melana, uh, usually relatively minor, not life-threatening. Why? Of course, because they perforate anteriorly, And the bleeding comes from posterior ulcers. So, you know, yes, you can get some ulceration, uh, you can get some bleeding, but it's really, really uncommon to have life-threatening hemorrhage with this. And 90% of them have a pneumoperitoneum, and that's how you stumble on the diagnosis. What are we going to do for that? Basically, in this environment where we have uh, limited anesthesia, critically ill patients, and uh, the need to get in and out, We're going to do just a gram patch. That's just some momentum that's sewn over the perforated hole and allow them to heal in. We almost never do definitive ulcer surgery in this environment. Even if they give you a classic history of, yes, I've had trouble with this and I've been treated six times for ulcers and so forth, you're not going to do it in an emergency situation, again, because it takes uh, longer than the system can tolerate and the patient can tolerate as well. There are some rare exceptions to that occasionally, very rarely, we will treat them non-operatively. But in order to do that, you have to have a nasogastric tube down to decompress the stomach absolutely well, and you basically have to have an abdomen that has a pneumoperitoneum, but no peritonitis. Um, The rest of them will do much, much better. If you're going to not operate on them, you have to realize that you're taking some significant risk because the data clearly shows that any perforation over 12 12 hours, mortality starts to skyrocket. So it's okay to make that decision as long as you know you're 100% right. But if you're not, you actually can be hurting the patient. Obviously, if there's no surgeons, um, you don't have to worry about it. Only about 50% of people after a perforated ulcer will actually develop recurring symptoms. So there's a big argument about what you do and whether or not they need definitive surgery. But what almost inevitably they need in this situation is treatment for Helicobacter pylori, uh, whatever the regimen in is in your particular area. Okay, here's a young boy, and for those of you that have been in the developing world, you can look at his face and give me the diagnosis. What is it? This is classic typhoid faces. The the sick typhoid patient always looks like this. You can tell them as you walk onto the ward. You can see their face and know that's what's wrong with them. It's that heavy-lidded, kind of obtunded, not really looking good. Now, yes, other sick patients can look like this, but in the right environment, this is almost always typhoid. As well. So this is a uh, 10-year-old uh, Togolese boy presents in the dry season. Okay, I'm not sure where that moved on. Um, and uh, was treated for malaria, which is what happens. They go to the local area. He's been sick for several weeks ago. Hasn't eaten for 48 hours. Typhoid, of course, is a Salmonella uh, variant, and there's actually a paratyphoid and a typhoid uh, uh, bacteria that can cause this. It's a disease of poverty, poor sanitation, and is usually seasonal. And why is it uh, seasonal? Largely because your water supply dries up and you end up drinking out of the same place as everybody has been defecating in or the cows have been walking in and that sort of thing. So uh, that's why it tends to be seasonal. This is a uh, study that basically shows that it's uh, dragging up over several days. You start out with uh, the fever and then the diarrhea, and then you normally won't perforate until about the third week. It's a four-week disease. Uh, one is the headache, fever, abdominal pain. Feel, you feel like crap. It's just like malaria, and that's why there's confusion. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of practitioners you talk to in the developing world, and they'll say, well, yes, typhoid malaria. They think it's exactly the same disease, and so it's not, Uh, but you have to keep that in mind. Week three is that classic typhoidal state, and they're going to have disordered uh, mentation and toxemia, and that's when they're going to perforate, by the way, and then if they're going to live, they'll get better after that. Labs are not particularly helpful. Uh, You may have a leukopenia. You may have a thrombocytopenia, one of the few diseases that if you have someone with an acute abdomen and a low white count, think typhoid. Culture is your best tool, but in most of the places I've ever been, I don't have any cultures that mean anything. Uh, the all test is everywhere. This is great for public health. It's no good for acute disease. Matter of fact, here's your best choice. Reach in your pocket, take a shilling, and flip it, and it'll be equally accurate and cost less, Okay. <laughs> If surgery is indicated emergently, and some of these people come in and they're clearly sick, obviously what you have to do is rehydrate them and get them ready for antibiotics. You don't want anesthesia to kill them. Uh, You want to do that yourself. So you've got to get them hydrated, and you've got to get them in better shape and get them ready with broad-spectrum antibiotics. And one of the things that's very, very important, this is a Christian conference, and one of the most important things to realize is that this patient may never wake up. One of the surgeons that's here, a good friend of mine, university trained, superb physician, great guy, does good job. But he had a 14-year-old boy who came in, critically ill, and he did a, a world-class resuscitation, and they couldn't get IVs, and he put in central lines, and he gave him fluids, and he rehydrated him, went to surgery, did a beautiful thyroid, typhoid surgery, and the guy died six hours without ever waking up. And the nurse came to him and said, why did you do that? He, and he was offended. You know, I mean, you're doubting my medical ability? I mean, this is, this is great. This, I did a good job. This, you know, some of these people die. So, she says, no, that's not what I meant. Why did you take him to surgery knowing he might die and not tell him about Christ? And I will tell you, if he came and told you this story today, the tears would still run down his face. And I've had similar stories myself. The answer is always remember that part of the pre-op evaluation is to at least give him the opportunity to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true for all of our patients. Many of these cases we can't do a whole lot about. But we can offer them eternal healing. And we are at fault if we do not. The antibiotics for typhoid are now increasingly confusing. It used to be easy. It was either chloramphenicol or penicillin. Well, unfortunately, neither of those work anymore. And so uh, fluoroquinolones came along. And they were fantastic because, of course, you got great blood levels with oral and so forth. And so for about a week, we could treat typhoid pretty easily that way. And then the resistance just started to skyrocket. So now uh, the cephalosporins are the drug of choice, but increasingly uh, we are seeing with ceftriaxone resistance, and that's about the only one that most of us have access to. So what exactly is the drug of choice right now is still up in air for this. You have to figure out what's happening in your area and whether it's working or not. Um, Here's the same little boy. You'll know that he went to, you see that he has these markings on his abdomen, and that's uh, he went to the national healer before he came to us and realized that many of these patients do and are delayed 6, 12, 24 hours because of expense issues that came along. What are your indications for surgery? Well, first of all, we all know about typhoid Mary and carrier states, and that's virtually never an indication for surgery anymore. So keep that in mind. Uh, About uh, 1 to 5% of these patients can actually hemorrhage significantly, 1 to 10%. Fortunately, very rare to actually have to operate on them because finding the perforation is sometimes, or finding which one's bleeding is sometimes difficult, so I'm glad. We normally don't have to do it for hemorrhage. Uh, Perforation, these are the ones that get your attention. Anywhere from 1 to 5% of these patients will perforate. They get a pneumoperitoneum, and you have to uh, operate on them. The perforation, It's sometimes very difficult, and the pneumoperitoneum rate is not anywhere near as high as it is for perforated ulcer disease. And so you have to keep this index suspicion, and you examine the patient, and you you give them uh, fluids, and then you re-examine them in six hours, and you re-examine them in six hours, and you re-examine them in six hours with x-rays as needed until you're sure that either they're okay or they need surgery. But it's just repeat examinations of the patients to find out. These kids, uh, for any of you that are familiar with necrotizing enterocolitis, uh, we have indications for surgery with those. The pneumoperineum is easy, but sometimes just failure to th- thrive, a mass that doesn't go away, uh, continuing peritonitis, s- literally the same kinds of um, uh, conditions that we'd operate on. Those little babies, we operate on these typhoid patients uh, even without pneumoperineum. The point is ongoing sepsis that we can't control needs operation. i you us know, skip that. Let's keep so this is what you get. The perforation is in the uh, pyre's patches. And you know the pyre's patches are only in the terminal ileum? Only. You, you have to understand that teaching is a process of telling lies to children. That's a, that's a sophisticated lie, but, you know, Only. Um, and, and they're usually very punched out, and then there's a lot of debate about what you do at that point. Some people would say that, like on this one on the right, where it's nice and looks nice and pink and viable, that you could just sew that one shut. Some people would say they need to breed it. Some people will say they all need to be resected. The answer is yes. Uh, do what you think is going to work. One thing that you'll notice on um, this one on the left, you'll see two open perforations there, one kind of at 3 o'clock, one at 9 o'clock. But then at about 11 o'clock, there's a real dark area, and this is where the pyres patch is actually rotting on you. And I often, in those situations, will just go ahead and invert those as well, just because they're going to perforate if you don't do something. The uh, perforation is really a hypersensitivity. It's your body's, it's not the bacteria that are doing it. First patch, of course, is our lymphoid tissue. It is an over-impressive lymphoid response to the bacteria that's causing the necrosis, cytokines, and all that jazz that are doing that. Uh, for a surgeon, cytokines, as far as we're going to get. That's, I'm going turn that. Uh, Again, these are peritonitis patients, and they're usually malnourished, and they're usually in trouble. So you have to make a a, a significant decision about how you're going to close the abdomen, are you going to do a second look, are you going to leave it open, are you going to use retention sutures. And again, uh, much smoke, much fury, not much science behind those answers. Except, of course, if you do it my way, it'll be right. That's all I can tell you. Um, Keep in mind that especially in kids, typhoid can cause cholecystitis, and acute cholecystitis. And because we don't consider acute cholecystitis as a common diagnosis in kids, um, we'll miss it. So keep that in mind. If you have a little kid that's sick and right upper quadrant, Uh, there's nothing special about the disease or the treatment thereof. You just do a cholecystic Acute cholecystitis outside of typhoid, pretty uncommon in the developing world, largely because we don't have much in the way of gallstones, and diabetic patients aren't in the same number of uh, prevalence that we have in the United States. So it's less common. Uh, We often will treat these patients, as we do in the States, with uh, ambulatory treatment, with some broad-spectrum oral antibiotics, and then have them come back. Now, if they come back and they're better, what do you do? Well, if there's no stones and the ultrasound is normal again in six weeks and so forth, there's good data that says you don't have to do anything for them. Now, in an environment where you might be making only $200 a year, saving the cost of surgery may make a real difference to that family, so we make this decision to operate very seriously as we go. If you have gallstones at that point, after they've gotten better and the common duct is normal, we would do a cholecystectomy. Uh, you don't need to wait to do surgery in that situation though because what we've clearly shown is that patients do better with acute cholecystitis if they're rehydrated antibiotics and within the first three days getting operated at that point, you don't have to do anything else. You don't have to have ERCPs or anything else. Now, if your bilirubin is high, then you have to assume there's a common duct stone. And ideally, of course, you do it with an ERCP. Yeah, a lot of those around. And uh, failing that, you need to do a common duct expiration. One mistake that sometimes people do, well, I don't know how to do a common duct, but I know I take the gallbladder out. That doesn't help anything. As a matter of fact, all you do is perforate your gallbladder closure, cystic duct closure, and you'll have trouble. So uh, that patient needs a surgeon capable of doing this. Non-infectious small bowel obstruction. We're getting real short, and so I'm going to go a little bit quickly in this. The point here is um, the diagnosis is one of history and physical and plain films. You don't need contrast studies. You can make the diagnosis. There's an old uh, bit of advice that they used to give. Don't let the uh, um, sun rise or set on a small bowel obstruction. The point was you had 6 to 8 to 10 to 12 hours to get them resuscitated, but then operate on them. Uh, we don't have the luxury of waiting in this situation when we don't have nutritional support. It's mostly true. There are exceptions to that, of course. Uh, we're judgment. Uh, if your white count is high in a small bowel obstruction, operate, because you've got a volvulus until you prove you haven't, and you've got some dead gut, so get, get operated. In a exception, the only point about this to be made is that, of course, adult in a exception, you can't do barium enemas or saline or air reductions. It doesn't work because there's always a pathology that needs to be resected. So in adult interception, they need surgery. Um, in kids, one of the things that's been kind of an interesting study over the last few years that's come out is that we've demonstrated that you can actually reduce them with just air in the rectum and using ultrasound. And so you don't need barium studies and you don't need radiologists and so forth. So in the notes that are in, that have been posted to the... Uh, website for this area. There's a big extensive note, lots of details, but there's some resources there that tell you how to do that if you need to do that. Keep that in mind. Uh, here's uh, the last study that we'll, we'll do for this morning. Uh, an eight-year-old presents with abdominal swelling, pain, and vomiting. Uh, white count is 14,200. She has a 6% eosinophilia. Uh, Hemoglobin is 8.9. She has a sausage-shaped right lower quadrant mass uh, that is palpated. Differential diagnosis. Sorry? Intussusception. Parasites. Parasites. What kind? Yeah, askers, roundworms. They're going to be the most common thing that will do this. So uh, on this x-ray, it doesn't really show up real well, but you can actually on a plain film sometimes see the shadows of the worms, and you can on this this film. Um, The most common uh, roundworms are problematic only in two situations. One is when they migrate, and one is when they don't. So that... uh, the migrating ones, we have all sorts of issues. This is how you get Loeffler's, I can't see it, what's that say? I can't read it. Ten? Ten. Thank you. Uh, Loeffler's uh, pneumonia uh, with the eosinophilia, you see that as well. Uh, you can certainly get jaundice, migratory jaundice. You can get pancreatitis as they wander up and down in the sphincter of Ode and up into the biliary and pancreatic system. And one of the things that's frustrating for surgeons is as you've taken the small intestine, you just about to close, you look at the anastomosis, and here comes a worm sticking his head up through your suture line. And uh, obviously that causes uh, perforations and difficulties as well. Uh, what we're going to talk about today is non-migratory, and that's when they growing in one place and stay there. And so we will get a bowel obstruction associated with this. Uh, the prevalence is widely variable. In um, Kenya, for example, at Tenwick, this is probably one of the most common diagnoses. Uh, in West Africa, I've seen it once. So it, it varies, and you have, it depends on, the, obviously, the bowel habits and the whole cycle of the worms and how that works out in their culture and so forth. Um, they may have a history of having had uh, a recent anti-helminthic treatment. They, they got their uh, mabendazole or albendazole at the school, and so these worms are dying, and as long as they were moving, they weren't obstructing, but now that they're Uh, dying, they're obstructing, so that's a possibility in this story. Uh, Physical examination is basically that of small bowel obstruction with the possibility of the mass. Uh, Contrast studies, um, if you have water-soluble contrast, which most mission hospitals don't, but if you do, that actually has some good statistical chance of breaking up the obstruction without surgery. So uh, it's just the the osmotic uh, aspects of it. Lots of fluid going in there, the worm gets irritated, they migrate, and it isn't that much of a problem. Ultrasound CAT scan will give you a diagnosis, obviously. What is your treatment? If you don't have peritonitis, you can rehydrate them, nasogastric decompression, and wait. Whether or not you treat them for the worms is a debate. Some would say that you don't treat them at all, that it doesn't add anything. As a matter of fact, if you make them sick, it actually has a higher chance. There is no controlled study. Uh, nobody knows the answer to that. Uh, the problem with uh, albendazole and mobendazole is they kill the worm. So they just stop right there. So that's problematic. Uh, Piperazine, uh, like we now we use for dogs in the United States, and we can't get anywhere else. But if you have Piperazine, that uh, slows them down and seems to be less obstructive. So, again, it's kind of a debate, and you usually have to go with whatever uh, the local hospital usually does. If they don't get better, you're going to have to operate on them. What do you do with that when you see this big, small intestine full of worms? If possible they always say, well, milk them into the cecum, so then they'll be no longer obstructive and they'll just poop them out. I haven't had much luck with that. Um, most of the time they're dead and dying and it doesn't really work. So you're going to have to make an enterotomy. Normally make that transversely 90 degrees to the longitudinal axis of the intestine. And then pack sponges and everything so you don't contaminate the living daylights out of everything because, of, of course, the bacterial hot count in that area is very high. You sit there and pull the worms out until you come up with a big pan full of worms and then close them. About a third of the patients will be such that you have to actually resect them statistically. So here's a case of, uh, you can actually see the loop that's full of worms just to the right of the umbilicus. After the enterotomy, this was the um, bowl full of ascariasis. This is a case where that, that bolus was so big that it flipped, created a volvulus, and the intestine died. So a third of them will be in this uh, category, and obviously this is a serious problem. Uh, We'll skip the volvius for today. Thank you very much for your time. I'd be glad to uh, talk to you. I would like to invite you, if you're interested in surgery, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons is having a reception during the supper hour. Grab your meal, come to us, and it's actually going to be in this room. And so uh, learn a little bit about what's happening uh, with the PACS uh, program. Thank you very much. My email, by the way, is bruce.steffes at pax.net. If you want either this presentation or the notes and you can't find them on the thing, email me. I'll be glad to send them to you.